Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by... It is easy to leave a burning building when it is on fire. But what if that building contains the very thing that gives you life, excitement, peace, joy, courage, and wonder? Will you be an agent of change or do nothing and eventually leave? If you work in Catholic ministry, business, or education and need quality content on your website or social media pages, contact The Simple Catholic for copywriting services at thesimplecatholic.blog and click on the Writing Services page for more information. The Church Militant Needs Soldiers Against the Enemy. Enlist the Simple Catholic in this fight for the truth. Good News Ministries of GNM.org It's the Catholic place for growing your faith. Good News Ministries will provide you with faith-building reflections, virtual retreats, prayer resources, and lots more. All of it is free. Visit gnm.org today. This is the Padua Podcast Network. These women were, they're now considered the grandmothers of, of feminism and what it is that they were trying to promote. And um, looking at kind of the underbelly of this movement, and it is not pretty. Um, there is a, just a lot of incredibly broken people who, you know, we know broken people break other people, and that's exactly what has happened. Thriving in the Trenches. It's the podcast where you will hear stories from real people with real purpose, all for a God who loves us with a real love. The Trenches, where life isn't always easy, but it is a place for women to be encouraged and equipped to uniquely and universally serve Christ in their feminine vocation. So, together, let's go deeper in our faith in God, in His church, and in our friendships. You are welcome here. Welcome to Thriving in the Trenches podcast. This is Becky Carter, and I am your host. Well, hello there. Here we are. I am... You know, I, well, I wouldn't love an episode if I didn't love the topic or love the person that I get to interview. And so I'm always really excited. And that probably so, seems very redundant to you as a listener. Like, Becky, you're always excited. Or, you always love such and such. But, um, you know, when I when I choose a topic or... I choose a guest, it really is for a reason. And I don't take those decisions lightly. And I don't just do something because someone has asked me to do it or um, a book promo or whatever. The topic has to really touch my heart because then I know that I can give you my best because my heart has been pricked as a way of something important to share with you that will help you in your journey with the Lord and to grow in holiness and to reject the lies of the world because really the world is stealing our happiness. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to walk in that anymore. And if I genuinely love you as my sister in Christ and those brothers in Christ out there that I know listen to the podcast, then I don't want you to walk in that bondage either. I don't want you hearing the lies and, and believing them. So when I 
was scheduling out this season, I knew that I wanted to have Carrie Gress uh, back on the podcast. She was in season season two, I believe. I'm not very good. I don't know all my episode numbers, but she had originally talked with us about the Auntie Mary. And through that conversation, actually a friendship grew and we have encouraged and supported and even worked together on several different ventures. And and so uh, I, I have had the privilege to become um, Carrie's friend and know her. And uh, she's she's just a very genuine heart warming person that loves the Lord, strives to be holy and and really just wants the truth out there. And so she wrote this little book. It's called The Auntie Mary Exposed, uh, the toxic femininity, uh, rescuing the culture from toxic femininity. It's a tan book and it is not the easiest read. Um, it's, it's difficult there. It's not a light read. It definitely takes some brain power. It did for me. And I had to do a lot of Googling and making sure I understood exactly what the word meant so that I could get the full context of what she was trying to share. She talks about the errors of Russia. Well, I had no clue really what that means. Well, Our Lady of Fatima talks about the errors of Russia and how they will spread throughout the world if we do not uh, experience conversion. And so I didn't know what that meant. And Carrie did a really good job of not giving a full history lesson, but she definitely started to open my eyes on on what that meant. And then I could see the connection between the errors of Russia and where we are and are heading deeper into here in the Western world. So, um, but it is a good book. It's an important book. And... Um, and she ends it talking about Our Lady and how Our Lady is our hope. And for us to become full of grace like Our Lady means that we have to work hard at becoming virtuous, work hard and practicing those virtues and asking God's grace every step of the way. So um, if you are not familiar with Carrie Gress, she does have her doctorate in philosophy from the Catholic University of America. She's also the editor of the online magazine, Theology of Home, um, which is a great little resource. You can get 10, I think it's 10, 10 curated articles in your email box every morning. And it really focuses on the truth, the goodness and the beauty that we as women are attracted to and it's not just religious conversations um, they have stuff about decor and clothes and just the things that us ladies like um, but anyway she's a regular blogger she's written numerous books she's been on a plethora of tv shows and radio shows she's she's just very well versed in what she's doing so it's a real treat to have her and her expertise here um to share with us and so here. I hope you enjoy the interview. Dr. Carrie Griss, welcome back to Thriving in the Trenches podcast. Well, thank you. It's great to be back, Becky. <laughs> I love calling you Dr. Carrie Griss because it seems so formal, but um, I know that... You don't normally call me that. <laughs> no, I don't. Um, I am 
so thankful to be able to have you back again. And here you are writing another wonderful book. But before we dive straight into that, I was hoping for our listeners who haven't heard our previous episode or haven't read any of your other books, I was hoping that you would tell them a little bit more about you. Um, As I like to say, beyond the bio, tell us something that (laughs) (laughs) your official bio might not tell us, but Mm -hmm. we want to get to know you. Ah, gracious. Well, there's a lot beyond the bio. Um, the big thing is, is that I'm expecting my fifth child. So that's definitely not in the bio right now. Congratulations. Um, shocking um, pregnancy, but uh, pretty excited about it. Um, yeah, I grew up in Oregon and I eventually made my way out to Washington, D.C. with a few pit stops in Europe before I settled here with my husband. And um I now end up writing a lot about women's issues. It's funny, when I was in graduate school, I said to myself, I will never write about women's issues. This is not my wheelhouse. I have want nothing to do with it. And um, so I always laugh that, you know, here I've written two or three books now about um, Catholic women's issues. Um, but otherwise, yep, I'm mainly a homeschooling mom. And um, I don't love homeschooling, but I love my kids. And so I... We have finally found a way to make it work for all of us so that I don't feel like I'm a failing mother (laughs) and they're actually learning. And, um, you know, thank God for online classes is all I have to say. Amen to that. But, um, yeah, so it's been a great balancing act for us. But, um, you know, there's nothing like homeschooling to bring out um, and make very clear your own weaknesses. So um, I've been working on those. But, um, (laughs) yeah, thank God we've we've been able to shore it up with um, some outside help. So that's been great. Um, that's awesome. I actually had a, a gal who was in college when she lived here. She s- sent me a message yesterday and she said, you're just such a saint for all those years of homeschooling. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, really, honestly, I look back and uh, wow, actually, it just brought out all my sinful natures. So mm. It's so hard to see yeah. it as a, a time of sainthood. And I guess I'm not a saint yeah. anymore. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just, I'm no, just it is definitely a very challenging thing. And, you know, I think it's amazing. There's some women that just flourish in it and are so good at it. And I'm just not one of those women. But, um, you know, we do what we have to do. And so it's um, it's working for us. And we're going to do it one more year. So we'll see. You know, we're taking it one year at a time. Mm-hmm. And we'll see what next year brings. But in the meantime, I feel like... I'm on year number five, and I feel like I finally figured out just how to balance it out so that the worst of my nature really isn't being brought out every day, all day long. <laughs> right. I totally get that. I wish we would have had more online classes um, yeah. earlier on. But so kudos to you, my friend. Kudos to well, you. Thank You've got you. great kids. So thank you. All right. So we're going to talk about some toxic femininity, some Mm. the Mm. anti-Mary exposed. And as any good author would do is they'll they will share with their audience what what kind of drove them to write that book. I know you wrote several articles through the last couple of years as you begrudgingly became a women's issue writer. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. um you know, just really, what put it on your heart that said, I'm going to write a whole uh, book on that? <laughs> whole book on this topic. Um, well, I wrote a chapter about it, actually, in the Marian Option. I discussed kind of this idea of are we in this age of anti-Mary or the age of Mary. And that was where, when I wrote that book, the Marian Option, is where I really started thinking about this idea of an anti-Mary, um, not as an individual 
but as an, a spirit. And of course, in Scripture, John Saint John talks about the spirit of the Antichrist. Um, of course, we can also read in Revelation, you know, the, the person of the Antichrist. But I don't I don't mean it in that sense. I mean it more in Saint John's meaning um, that there's a spirit that sort of gripped gripped women, and that we've kind of been, t- you know, it's taken hold since the 1960s. And um, so initially, I just thought it was an interesting idea and but it was one of those ideas where I just felt like the more I dug the more it was there and um it's funny since I published the book I've had people say you know I can't unsee it now <laughs> I see the anti-Mary everywhere and that was kind of my experience was just like uh, you know it was just jumped out at me and um the research was so abundant in fact I really had to make kind of an editorial decision when I was writing the book because there was just so many articles there were so many stories there were so many things that I could link to um but in a book it's hard to sort of hyperlink to things because people can't go back and um, unless you're reading the kindle they can't go back and look at the original article or that kind of thing so um and I also didn't want it to be the kind of book where um you just went away just feeling like the world is ending (laughs) and it's it's so awful um so I I had to sort of selectively choose which articles I wanted to feature and and put out there as examples of the anti-mary um but uh yeah and and of course you know the first half of the book really lays out the problem of the anti-mary and then the second half is much more hopeful and looks at who our lady is and why she still remains this model for us um one that's accessible and you know that we actually can have some hope in redeeming the world um through her as as our spiritual mother so um so that was the nice part was once i got through that that first half the book and and i think readers find have this experience too (laughs) yes they walk away from the book feeling like okay this isn't all just awful because there's so many books that do that where it just lays out the problem and uh, you know you just feel terrible at the end of the book um you know just really hopeless so that was kind of my one of my goals too was to make sure that people didn't leave the book feeling like everything is just you know, or in hell in a handbasket kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, um, I mean, to be real, that the first part of the book where you give true historical examples of mm-hmm. of this anti-Mary spirit. Thank you for clarifying that, that it's a it's a spirit. And, you know, we we're not attacking persons. We are mm-hmm. highlighting the spirit that is causing the person so much pain and suffering whether they realize it or not in their Mm -hmm. life and so Mm -hmm. um i feel like that's one of one of those main things we have to highlight about this book is that you're not attacking a person you're Mm -hmm. not Mm -hmm. oh attacking is even an awful word that's a very strong word and i Mm -hmm. don't really mean that but Mm -hmm. you know this is this is a spirit. the The Bible says that we. Mm-hmm. This is a battle, not of flesh and blood, but of principalities, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and this applies in all facets of life. So, um, so right. that's the first thing I want to make sure that our listeners understand. If you haven't read the book, or maybe if you already did, and and this first part of the book just made you feel disgusting. Well, it it probably should make you feel a little uh, super uncomfortable because mm. of the ugliness of what is happening with mm-hmm. this anti-Mary spirit. And um, I feel like, Carrie, we're a little bit insulated and in a bubble in in the spirit, as any evil spirit will do, they kind of water down mm-hmm. the truth of the matter. 
Yeah. Well, no, and I, I think that was what was interesting about just div- diving into the research and seeing all of this as a whole, because it's so easy to just sort of live your life and sort of see these examples of things that, you know, just aren't right, but not, you can't really put your finger on it. Um, but to just go back and look at the the roots of the feminist movement, and that's, that's what I did. I looked at the 1960s um, and on, and, you know, who these women were, they're now considered the grandmothers of, of feminism, um, who they were and, and what it is that they were trying to promote. And um, looking at kind of the underbelly of this movement, and it is not pretty. Um, there is just a lot of incredibly broken people who, you know, we know broken people break other people. And that's exactly what has happened. And um, also even just to see how much um, these women all, you know, almost to a one had issues with their own mothers. And, it, you know, it's just fascinating to see the different ways in which they, they lashed out. And of course, even Betty Friedan in, in um, her, her work, The Feminine Mystique, which people largely attribute as sort of the, the kickoff of the whole movement um, in a dramatic way, She's describing in it the ache that has no name, and she's describing, you know, housewives and this emptiness that they feel. Well, what she's describing, of course, is the, the that desire that every human person has for God. She just didn't realize what she was describing. And um, so it's really fascinating to see, too, how much um, just ignorance of her own tradition, she she was a Jewish woman, um, showed up in her own writings. If she had known anything about the, the, the tradition of her faith, she would have been able to see, oh, this is a desire and a longing for God that we have. Um, and we can also see this pattern play out, too, in, in terms of what, what these women were really embracing was something that cultures for, uh, throughout millennia have been warning women against, um, that w- women, if you act in a certain way, it's going to lead to the destruction of your families and and of culture. Um, we can see it even in fairy tales, and I go into this in the book too. But it's just fascinating to see how much they had to not know um, about history, culture, um, it, you know, just basic fairy tales and and um, human nature that they had to sort of erase and think, you know, we're doing something brand new here. Well, if you look back at mythology and whatnot, what they did was not new, and um, the results were very predictable just that they didn't have that kind of, of education. Um, and that's what's fascinating, too, is you can see how paganism always, always creeps in when the church is weak. And, of course, you know, back in the 60s, the church was kind of a disaster after Vatican II. Things really fell apart. And the church didn't have the strength to be able to sort of push out these bad ideas. And, um, and these women, like I said, didn't have the education, and they were totally broken, and they just kind of fell into these traps that— uh, you know, if you look historically, they have been there for every age has them and falls into this kind of idolatry. Um, it's like a jungle just creeping in. Um, paganism will do that whenever Christianity is weak. So mm-hmm. it's fascinating to just see these repeat pat- repeated patterns. And um, again, they thought that they were doing something brand new. And what was new was, of course, television and the media that they had to be able to spread these ideas in a very dramatic and radical way. Um, that you know, historically, they didn't. Nobody had access to that kind of spreading of information, um, and that was really what I, I think it, it was—the combination of their these ideas that felt new and fresh and liberating to women, and then coupling that with the, the images of very savvy, attractive women like Gloria Steinem on television, um, and that was kind of what did it. And then you add to that 
propaganda from places like Cosmopolitan Magazine. Um, I interviewed Sue Ellen Browder, who worked for them for 20 years, writing stories. And, you know, she makes it very clear that what they were targeting were women who were virgins or were mothers. Like you could, a Cosmo girl could be anything, but she could not be either of those things. And so it's no accident that, you know, Mary is the virgin mother. And that's exactly what they're targeting in women because Satan knows that our relationship with God is really built upon our purity. Um, you know, blessed are those who are pure of heart. Um, they shall see God. We ha- Our purity is a, is a way through which we can draw closer to God and understand him as our, our father. And of course, a motherhood is the other avenue through to, through, through to, or to God um, as well. And so if you kind of knock a woman out at the knees by taking away both of those aspects of her life, then it's going to be very hard for her to not become broken and um, not to have a, a severing of her relationship with God. Um, so it's it was very, you know, there's not a conspiracy in the sense that these women had any idea what they were doing. But if you look back and see this pattern, you can see very clearly that the goal really was um, this anti-Marian, um, anti-Virgin mother um, emphasis because of the, what happens when you when you target those two elements of the woman. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to go back to, to one point you made about the changing of nature. And mm-hmm. I will say that um, in chapter four, the big lie, changing human mm-hmm. nature, mm-hmm. Um, I, re- I actually texted you when I got to the end of this chapter. I was sitting mm-hmm. in the church waiting on some children who were <clears throat> going to confession. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it was the biggest light bulb moment for all the conversations about this topic, for from reading everything this this was my big light bulb moment um, mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. in the uh, the entire thought process, and so mm-hmm. and that was the changing of human nature, and mm-hmm. that this is our ultimate goal. Like this is how God created us to know Him, and it takes a change of nature, right, from the old mm-hmm. man to the new man, and so this. This picture or this analogy, I guess we can say, comparison, I don't know the exact term I'm trying to use here, but um, it's just in my face now. Yeah. Yeah. No, this was one of those insights that, um, you know, I had so many insights that would come to me and be like, how did I not see that before? Um, but it, it started, I mean, of course, again, in the Marian auction, I was looking a lot at Fatima and um, what she, her, our lady's predictions that if... If this, if Soviet Russia um, wasn't converted, that that she would spread her lies to the rest of the world. And so I was kind of fascinated by this idea because, of course, we are seeing so much damage in the in the rest of the world. But I think that you can tie much of it back to Soviet Russia. That I think her prediction um, holds true because what the Soviets were trying to do was to create. A, a new person, um, the, the worker or the, the robotnik, that's where the war word um, robot comes from, um, that someone was no longer connected to the family. And it's really at the heart of it, the destruction of the family. Um, that That's really what the goal of Soviet Russia was. So people will look at Soviet Union and say, you know, the problems were really economic and um, sociological and, you know, all kinds of other, um, you know, 
descriptions of what went wrong. But I think at the heart of it is they they, tr- they destroyed the family, um, and they tried to make women the exact same as men. And this is why you know abortion was on demand. You know these people couldn't own property, but they could sure get an abortion any day of the week. And so you have you know these horror stories of people who've had 50, 60, 70 abortions throughout their lives because um, that's just what they did. Um, and, but at the heart of it is, again, you're taking the mother out of the home and you're, you know, the, the relationship between the husband and wife is no longer sacred. The relationship between the child and the mother is no longer sacred. And what's fascinating about all of this is that in Russia, it, you know, they, this is something that was brought upon the Russians. You know, it's like putting a saddle on a, on a cat. You know, people have made that description of it. It just didn't, didn't fit them at all. Um, and yet, w- what's interesting is to see how we've taken these exact same ideas of, you know, breaking up the family where men are the enemy. I mean, this is one of the first lies is that men are um, are, are an enemy. We, we want to be both just like them, but we also want them to change. And this is where kind of the descriptions of to- toxic masculinity come from. Mm-hmm. Um, but the bigger enemy is really our children. <laughs> and um, you can see this, of course, in the rhetoric all day long. Um, that a child will be an obstacle to your career and to your future happiness and to your success. Um, and so the, the idea, of course, is that, you know, we can have it all, and, and, um, but we just shouldn't, can't have a family at the same time. Um, but what they want us to see is ourselves as working women. And so we've taken this on completely, um, you know, just absorbed it into the culture. So it's no longer... Uh, you know that saddle on a cat it's just actually something that we, we we don't even notice it anymore it's just we've become so used to this and so focused on this idea that women are supposed to control things um we're the independent woman we're powerful and yet um what we're not supposed to be is fruitful um and it's re- totally looked down upon you know to have more than two children and um to, to spend your life as a stay-at-home mother or, or homemaker you know those kinds of things are just completely um, verboten, really, you know, they're just, you're not supposed to do those things. Um, so it, it's interesting to see this pattern of how we've basically taken on Soviet Russia's attitudes about things. Um, but we don't realize that's really where it came from. It came from Marx. And it, it really is this idea of separating us away from fruitfulness and giving us power. And of course, we know that when we go searching for things, we're not going to get them. I mean, the same thing is with, you can see this with feminine beauty, Women are striving to be beautiful all the time, and yet it ends up being sensual or or just mere vanity. And Mm -hmm. so the beauty isn't really there. It's not authentic beauty. It's the same thing with power. And so it's fascinating to look at our lady who's, she's been called the most powerful woman in the world. She's also been said by every person who's ever seen her in an apparition that she was the most beautiful woman they ever saw. Um, And it's because she's a reflection of God's will, of God's goodness, of God's beauty, of God's power. Um, that she has all of these things. So we're sort of grasping at straws to get at these things um, that we can't ever quite attain because we're not doing it in the right way. We're not doing it in a godly way. Um, so in any event, all of that is just to say it's it's interesting to see this pattern that we've kind of absorbed into our culture and think is very natural and normal. And this is just the way women are supposed to be and have always been meant to be um, and not really realize there's this whole undercurrent that has come through Marx to us. Um, and it is this desire to change our human nature, that we can be different, 
um, that we can be these workers. Um, and, and we see this also, I think even the LGTB movement has, you can call it the kind of a fourth wave of feminism. Um, the second wave, which is, you know, the 1960s onward, um, they were really grouped together by this idea of abortion and that brought them together. All these ideological differences that had among them were erased through abortion. And you can see that now too in women's movements, as long as you're for abortion, you're sort of embraced by the cause, no matter what else you think. Um, and the same is true with the LGTB movement where, you know, it's, you're embraced by the, by the group, as long as you're for a, a distorted version of sexuality. Um, so it's these, these sins that are rallied around that are really shaping these groups and ideologies. Um, and at the heart is this, this desire to say, we're different. We're, we're totally different than we don't need families. We don't need to be fruitful. Um, we can we can live our lives in a very different kind of way, um, and that's just the sad thing because of course we know that these ultimately are not going to lead to happiness. And you know the stories are just endless about women who have bought into this lie and now they're 50, 60, 70 years old, and they're miserable and they just have live with these incredible regrets. You know I I don't have children. I don't have a husband. Um, I may have a lot of money. I may have had a great career, but you know at the end of the day. When you're on your deathbed, those are not the things that people mm-hmm. hang on to. Um, it's relationships and um, be- the beauty of the family and the gifts that come through that. And those are things you can't give to somebody at 70 or 80 years old. They have to be part of a, a, a life well lived. And um, we're not offering women that as an option in our culture anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I hear that and I think, well, thank God he is the redeemer because even someone who is at that point in their seventies and eighties and they Mm -hmm. are dying alone. And I don't mean that to be an over dramatic thing. It happens all the time. And it, if, if you have a, an ounce of charity and love in your heart, then that should break your heart. That should, that, that should break our hearts. Well, and the worst part about it too, is of course, we know what the accuser does. We know that Satan just, you know, gets in there and just makes them feel even worse. And, you know, says you, it's your fault and, you know, on and on and on. And, and so it's harder for them to find the redeemer, to find that love and the mercy. And, you know, that's all the more reason why we need to reach out to these kind to people like in this situation, because mm-hmm. it's, it's gotta be incredibly difficult to sort of battle all those demons on all those different levels after you've, you've lived a life, um, you know, following all these lies from the culture. Mm. Oh man. Yes. We, uh, I'm sure there were already ministries and, and groups of or, uh, or organizations that, that is, if it's not already there, it's, we're going to need it. And that is yeah. to, um, reach out and minister that specific demographic of mm. um, instead of the widow, these are those who are, you know, dying without family, mm-hmm. lonely, and mm-hmm. and like you said, lost, and still hearing the mm-hmm. lies of the evil one, which means they don't even feel like they can reach out to have someone mm-hmm. help them through that process. But I want to, yeah. I want to, I want to say this, um, I feel like part of this is my own personal and I know that I can't be alone but when you say the errors of Russia and the lies of mm-hmm. Russia mm-hmm. how many of us really have no clue what that is I know I was one <laughs> I mean right. we have become pretty historically weak 
our knowing mm-hmm. what our history is. And so to, mm-hmm. to who is Marx? How many people? Mm-hmm. I had to really mm-hmm. go back and reread Marxism and okay, mm-hmm. all right, that's what that is. And I had mm-hmm. I had to kind of study this book um, mm-hmm. because you spoke about so many things that I wasn't familiar with, which is good. It, it made me learn more and understand so much more even what our lady is sharing with us in Fatima about mm-hmm. the lies of Russia well what does that mean mm-hmm. yeah and so yeah. I f- don't would you agree that a lot of people have really no clue that we're just repeating history or mm-hmm. we're <laughs> buying into the lies of Russia right. uh, yeah no I think absolutely and um this is the hard thing of course about just what's happened in our schools and education systems I mean the fact that we have socialism cropping back up again I and mean, basically Socialism is an issue and, you know, infanticide has been a major issue this year. And it's no accident those two are coupled together. They're, they're, they're kind of just two sides at the same coin based on Marxism. So I, I didn't want to go to, into Marxism too deeply in this book. There's um, There are a lot of great resources out there. Actually, one of the most stirring ones is um, the testimony of Bella Dodd, who had been a, a communist. And she was trying to help. Uh, the communists infiltrate both the church and the United States. And um, she ended up having this huge conversion. Fulton Sheen was um, the priest that brought her into the church. And um, just an wow. amazing story. Um, but she talks very explicitly about just the role of, of communism and, um, you know, how active they actively they were trying to infiltrate um, these different areas. And um, so it's, it's overwhelming when you start looking at it, but it, I think it's overwhelming before you get into it because they just sound obscure, like who's Karl Marx and what does he have to do with anything? Um, and yet it's, it, we're kind of soaking and marinating in the ideas of Marx without even realizing it. I think that's one of the things that's, that's kind of frustrating, but I also didn't want this book to feel like a heavy history lesson. Um, right. So there's a lot of great, I know there's a documentary documentary that came out recently. I think it's called a uh, wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, I haven't seen it yet, but I know it's been playing on EW10 and oh, you can get on Amazon and it's supposed to be excellent. Um, I've heard really great reviews of that um, for just kind of summarizing um, the situation. If people want to go deeper, but, um, but I, I think it's enough to just even look at what this, this idea behind, you know, trying to change human nature and, you know, human nature is just, it's always going to win. It's, <laughs> you can't, I mean, this is one of the reasons why it hasn't, human nature hasn't changed. This is why we can look back at um, the Iliad and the Odyssey and still find compelling pieces of this. Um, you know, I love the Odyssey. I love when Odysseus gets home and his relationship with Penelope. And, you know, there's so many beautiful things in that that are just so moving and heart-wrenching. And if our human nature had changed, we, we wouldn't be able to relate to that. We wouldn't, you know, obviously some stories speak to us more than others, but at the very core, um, there's so many pieces about us that, that haven't changed. And, um, and I think that was the other fun part of the, the book was really to look at, well, what does it mean to be a woman? Because I don't think we think about it enough anymore. What, what, what do I have as a woman that I can do that men can't do? And um, of course, having a child is, is the most obvious thing, but that's just a, like a, a great symbol of who we are meant to be in general. Um, even looking on a spiritual level, I think we, we dismiss too much what it is that those amazing holy women are doing, you know, in cloistered nuns. The fact that we still have cloistered nuns is pretty remarkable and <laughs> says something about um, about it as an important pointer to, to what femininity is. But you can see in the lives of these women that they they have 
this deep, profound experience of God, and they know themselves to be daughters of God the Father. In fact, um, I just posted an article on our site, Theology of Home, about how nuns don't have midlife crises. Um, there's just this incredible peace and joy that they have because they're in this constant relationship with God the Father, which is, doesn't mean that they don't have dryness and periods of struggle, um, but they know how to deal with them and get through them. But more importantly, I love looking at these women and seeing God plant seeds in them, and they're the ones that receive this seed, and then the seed grows, and the seed becomes something far larger than they ever imagined. So imagine someone like Mother Teresa. You know, she gets she's in Ireland. She's a she's just living a quiet life there, and God plants a seed. You need to go to India, so she goes to India. She's following along his his path, and of course we know her to have created the missionaries of charity, which are around the world. But she basically birthed this idea. You know, so we can see this great parallel between what happens to a woman biologically and what happens to her spiritually. Um, and God wants to give all of us both of those things. You know, many of us are called to be biological mothers or adoptive mothers, um, but we're called the spiritual fruit as well. And, you know, that's the beauty of the fact that we can receive the Eucharist every day, that these seeds can be planted in us and we just have to be open to them. And um, these seeds are not just biological motherhood, but there's a spiritual motherhood element there as well. And this is, you know, what Mother Teresa did. This is why she's called Mother, um, because she's taking these people into her heart and soul and bringing healing to them. Even as they're dying biologically, she's helping them come to wholeness and come to, to you know, know their dignity, um, that they are loved as children of God, even as, um, you know, they're living this incredible poverty in their death. Um, and that's what women do, is we we take things into ourselves and we make them better. And um, even looking at our arms, I always love the example of how, you know, my arms are bent, women's arms are bent in a way that we can cradle a child. Men's arms are not bent that way. And, um, you know, we have kind of a bend at our elbow and theirs just goes straight out if you hold it out in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have hips and breasts and, you know, all of these things point to this capacity to nurture and to transform others. Um by the love that we have. And and you can see this certainly in in the Blessed Mother. Um, you know, we speak of her and speak of her as as a mother and Christ as the fruit of her womb. Um, this isn't accidental. This is very important that she's a mother and her embrace and the, the transforming power she has through her yes. Um, so anyway, it's the, the book goes into a lot too about thinking about more deeply about what it means to be a woman outside of the context of our careers and, you know, what it is that we're supposed to be doing outside the home. Mm-hmm. Well, in your book, as you get into, so let's leave all that yucky <laughs> Marxism and demons mm-hmm. and all that good stuff out. And and like you said, let's move on into the hope filled. And, you know, I am such a, a believer in stories and <clears throat> sharing how the Lord has worked in everybody's lives in some way and in your book you you share that you know you had believed in these lies and even you know if if you'll share a little bit about how where you were before and then what you were searching for and what did bring authentic happiness because you even share a story about when you were a mother and you were or you were trying to understand what this this mothering feeling was because as I remember, you kind of struggled with that. 
Yeah, no, I mean, that's the, that's a bundle of questions. In I there, know. Becky, sorry, but. sorry, sorry. Just pick it apart <laughs> and go with where you want to go. So. I just go with the flow. <laughs> go. Um, yes. No, I, I mean, what's interesting is I think looking at my own life, I know um, this book was fascinating for so many reasons because when I was in high school, I had this... I was deeply fascinated with Our Lady of Medjugorje, with Our Lady of Lourdes, and just all these apparition sites. And, uh, you know, I went to a Catholic high school and I was really poorly catechized. Um, so my father passed away when I, after my two weeks after my 16th birthday, and um, our family was supposed to actually go to Medjugorje um, the year before he died. And then he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and died, you know, eight months later. Um so I ended up going just by myself with a, a group of students from my high school and um, still, you know, made the, had an amazing trip and um, it was definitely a true pil- pilgrimage. Um, but there was so much fruit from that. But, you know, the hard thing is, is when you're not well catechized, the fruit can only go so deeply. Um, so I'll never forget when I finally went to confession and I was still trying to, you know, I was trying to go to daily mass. I was going to confession regularly. But if you don't know, you know, that certain sins are mortal sins, you can just only get so far. So mm-hmm. I'll never forget, I was actually after college, um, I finally, I was in a Marian conference and I went to confession and um, the priest said something about drunkenness. And I was like, wait, drunkenness is a mortal sin? <laughs> you know, it was one of these things where it was like, of course it is. But I had no idea because I, I think that I felt like the priests that had heard my confessions were just so happy to see a young woman in the confessional that they never challenged me or asked me or... You know, I just didn't have good resources. And of course, this was before the internet, so it's not like I could look things up. And you were kind of at the the mercy of whatever local Catholic bookstore there was and your libraries and that kind of thing. So, um, but in addition to all this, I, you know, I'm poorly catechized, but I still have this devotion to Our Lady. But, I, you know, I'm writing my senior thesis on the, the Buddhist idea of um, enlightenment in, in Zen Buddhism. Um, but I'm also have a grandmother who's totally involved in, in new age movement. And, um, I was really, I loved her very, very deeply and just wanted to be close to her. And so as a result, I, I would listen to her and, you know, she took me to have my, my astrological chart read and showed me the chart she had made for me when I was born. And, um, you know, she was really <laughs> took crystals wow. and all of these different books. Um, so when I was researching this project, there's, um, you know, this whole era a- area of so-called scholarship um, called the goddess movement that has really risen up since the 70s and so I'm reading all the books that are associated with it and sure enough I you know read a large number of them because she had passed them on to me and you know the whole idea being that there's a goddess within us and once we identify them we're powerful and anyway it's it's pretty scary and sketchy stuff because it's not really based on anything other than sort of fabricated things from the 1970s but um so I still marvel at that period of my life that I actually got through it and, you know, with with any faith. And I know that, you know, much of it had to do with these amazing women. They were all my mom's age um, who did pray the rosary every Thursday morning at my high school. And so I was a college student and I would just go join them Thursday mornings and pray the rosary with them. And it was really through them that I learned about Marian consecration and um, just kind of kept getting fed really good content and um i think that was really the turning point so i can even see there you know these kind of dueling mothers of sorts um Hmm. where you've got you know women trying to offer me their wisdom and um you know thanks be to god i had some women that were had the ability to give me the truth and something that was peace-giving and life-giving and um and actually good for me um 
so anyway, I, I think it's interesting to sort of see how much we're formed though by the by the culture because if it hadn't been for that, those women, I probably would still be grasping and searching and looking and um, trying to find things. And I think that's one of the the big struggles about this anti-Marian movement is it makes it's because of this group that I've called the matriarchy makes it incredibly hard to find information beyond what they want us to read. So, um, you know, it's, it's in the fashion industry, it's in politics, it's in Hollywood, it's in our pop music. And the basic idea, of course, is that um, we have to have abortion and um, we have to fight the patriarchy. You know, it's all the same rhetoric from 50 years ago, and yet we just haven't put up a good fight against it. So this is why they're still using this exact same rhetoric um, that their grandmothers and great-grandmothers used because it seems to be effective and women still think, you know, oh, the patriarchy is bad, even though we don't really know, know what that means anymore. Um, right. So anyway, I, I guess long story short, though, it was also really challenging for me to sort of feel close to who Our Lady was. Um, and I, I think a lot of that was just feeling like I didn't, I didn't know who she was because I didn't understand her virtues because I'd never really thought about meekness as a good thing you know i think we we tend to go from thinking of you know an independent woman or if she's not an independent woman she's a doormat and this is kind of our options um and of course those are the two extremes but our lady offers us an example of authentic womanhood um but because it's so unfamiliar to us it's it's really hard for us to approach it and so i, I talk about that kind of at, at length in the book how do we start to understand what it means to be meek? And, um, you know, meekness is one of those things that was amazing to sort of see what it means. It really means, you know, Jesus and Mary are both described as meek. Well, no one would describe Jesus as a doormat. I mean, he wasn't right. just being passive, um, but he had, there was purpose behind it. And he was, he, he was controlling his own emotions and his own anger and aggression and frustration and, you know, all of the attending emotions that must go with, being crucified publicly um, by your own people. And so I, I think that's, you know, the that incredible virtue of being, and I think a lot of us long for this, where we're in control of our emotions so much that even though we may be feeling something very strongly, we still can respond in a way that we want to, um, in the way that is in accord with what we know to be good. And um, so that's really, meekness is actually associated with training horses. You know, you can imagine a stallion or, or an incredibly powerful horse and they're bridled and they're, you have to bring them under control. And that's kind of what happens with us when we're meek is we have the capacity to control our emotions instead of being living by them and, and responding to every little single one and making sure everybody knows exactly how we feel all the time. Um, so I think it was those kinds of realizations that I just didn't know who she was from the inside. I could see who she was on the outside and felt very saccharine and, you know, one-dimensional. Um, but I had to start understanding what these virtues were such that I could understand her from from the inside. And, of course, you know, having my own children helped a lot because it made me realize just how much she loves us and, the you know, the good she wants to give us. Um, but yeah, I had to definitely grow in virtues and things like patience and <laughs> compassion and whatnot, um, to be able to understand her better from the inside. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I love that picture of bridling a horse and I know I've heard you say it before and it was a real humdinger for me when I heard it. Um, it was, a, it was probably at least a year or two ago 
I was listening to something else and you made the comment about controlling our emotions, not letting our emotions control us. And Mm -hmm. it sounds like meekness is that virtue that we should be praying for so that we aren't driven by our emotions. And and Mm -hmm. to clarify, I think a lot of people might feel like what I could be saying is stuff down your emotions, your mm-hmm. emotions aren't valid, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. all kinds of things in that direction. But mm-hmm. that's that's not what I'm saying. It is OK mm-hmm. to say I'm angry. It is OK to say I'm frustrated, but to communicate and to or maybe maybe it's not time to communicate it. Maybe I don't mm-hmm. need to let the whole world know I'm frustrated. Mm-hmm. I need to take it to the Lord and ask him to show me in my own self, in my own sinfulness, what is driving that emotion? What can I let him mm-hmm. heal? What part of me can I let him heal so that it don't always respond in that way? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. No, and I think that's one of the, the hard things about social media is it has really encouraged us. You know, it sort of was... Um, like adding a match to this sense that somehow every emotion had to be validated at every single point in in, in the day. And yet, uh, you know, especially if you're dealing with children, if you're just, <laughs> children are all emotion. And if the mother's all emotion, you know, what a disaster you've got. There's got to be somebody who's, who is controlling the situation and who's leading and ordering and helping them understand how to order their emotions um, simultaneously. Yeah. So it's, um, this, this is another one of the lies, though, of course, is that, um, you know, every emotion that we experience is, is meant to be felt by others. Um, and that we're really driven by our emotions. But instead, we've, we've forgotten that we have the capacity to be logical and to, to say, you know, I'm, I don't want this to run and control my life, but I, I want to be able to control it with the goal in mind of, you know, what was what, what am I made for? I'm made, you know, if your vocation is you're made to be a mother, well, then you can't operate if you're constantly living by um, your own passions and whatnot. I mean, you can't you can't form relationships that way. You can't have enduring relationship with your spouses. I mean, everything just kind of comes um, apart at the seams when when that we have that experience. And um, so, yeah, I think that's one of the the big problems that we have unleashed as well as just this um, kind of the kingship of emotions in our lives. Mm-hmm. Well, and you, you said earlier that we are drawn to beauty, especially as women. It's no lie mm-hmm. that we are all searching for beauty and mm-hmm. that um, explanation or description of Our Lady, anyone who has experienced a vision of Mary, um, the most common way that she is described is by the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. And as you were Mm -hmm. sharing that, I just kept thinking, and, and as you were describing why she's beautiful, she's, she's full of grace. She is full of God and full of virtue, which is why we have to keep emptying out our own self Mm -hmm. and the sinful part of us and the more holy we become, the more beautiful we become, the authentic beauty, not the beauty that mm-hmm. fades away, you know, when your Botox right. has faded away right. or, you know, whatever right. you're you're using to pursue this mm-hmm. um, worldly. Um, right. Well, and I, I think that's one of the fascinating. I mean, beauty itself is, is, is probably one of those topics I could just talk about for days because. 
women are so driven by it, but why are we driven by it? I mean, that I think that's a, f- a fascinating question. Why are men not driven by it? I mean, now we have, of course, metrosexuals and it's becoming more popular, but this is fundamentally not something that men really concern themselves with. Um, but why are women so fixated on this? And and part of it is because we, you know, Satan's whispering in our ear, you can control men if you're if you're beautiful and if you're sensual and you know it's a way to manipulate um but it's also a way to free people and i I think that's one of the things that this is the piece that we miss is our beauty can be used to make us um to help us be a bridge for people to heaven or a bridge to hell um we have that capacity through who we are and you know even comes back to this idea of women are not weak you know we are incredibly powerful and we're seeing the 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 way that this power when not used well can really destroy a culture um and we're seeing this in spades in our own culture but what we're missing is how incredible the power is when it's really used for good and this is what our lady offers us as this model and we can see this throughout the lives of all these women saints who said yes to god who in the same way that our lady had to say yes to god they said, yes, thy will be done, and they followed it. And, you know, if you look at someone like St. Catherine of Siena, St. Bridget of Sweden, St. Helen, St. Monica, I mean, what they what these women achieved in their lives is just inc- is miraculous and mm-hmm. incredible and even dwarfs what, you know, the, the major achievements that com- contemporary women achieved. Um, because, you know, Hildegard of Bingham is another fascinating example. Um, but it's, it's because, again, when we're not searching for when we're searching for God's will, we get everything. Um, but when we're searching for anything less than God's will, then we, we usually end up with not very much. Um, and and this is, again, the beauty piece is fascinating to me because women are meant to help elevate the souls of men. Men talk about this, and I, I always feel a little bit uncomfortable talking about it because I obviously am not a man and I don't have this experience. But I've had enough men tell me and I've read enough um, about it. And you can, you know, every single poem and and country music lyrics and uh, you know all of this points to the kind of woman that men love and um you know it's not the naggy woman in the pantsuit who's telling him to take the garbage out um you know there's something about this woman that she brings peace to him and she stills his soul and she you know she feels like home and she elevates him and lifts him up um in in ways that men don't do for each other and this is what women are supposed to do and fulton sheen has this great quote about how you know you can measure a the level of a civilization based on its women, um, because the men will always follow the women. Um, and you know what happens when you live in a civilization where the women are now following the men? Um, we have women cursing the same numbers, if not more, than men are. We have women living promiscuously. You know, they, 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 we are not offering men anything to look up to and to make themselves better for. Um, and so they're not doing it. Um, and it, it's just this recognition that we are the soil of the culture and that the seeds are planted in and the, you know, the only good garden can grow if there's good soil. Any farmer can tell you that. Um, and that's, this is one of the reasons why the anti-Marian spirit has been so effective and you can see why Satan has used it because it really just, once you get the women, you get everybody. Um, so it, it is an interesting thing to look at all of this and see just the role that beauty does play it's not a superficial something that you know is nice when it's there but it's it's a genuine gift to us especially the more the holier we become 
the more beautiful we become. And, you know, Mother Teresa is another one of those great, great examples. <laughs> oh, yeah. She, you know, she was not a beautiful woman. Um, but everybody says she's just so beautiful and they were so drawn to her and they wanted to be close to her. And um, so you can see that, you know, beauty becomes intangible when it's when it's God's beauty um, versus, you know, the Botox stretched, um, you know, kind of beauty that so many women are, are searching for in our lives today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you've heard, um, you know, many, many people say I'm a I'm a better version of me when I'm with you. And so mm-hmm. really, as the gospel commands us is to go out and share the good news. And I pray that through this interview, that that these words will touch someone's heart and they will hear the good news so that they can find that joy that they're looking for, that mm-hmm. the lasting happiness that they're looking for, not a, sh- a shot of Botox. I'm not like knocking on Botox, but it's a great analogy. You know, the the shot of something that's going to make you happy, but it's only going to last a few weeks. And then you're going to mm-hmm. have to go back for some more. And mm-hmm. um, But God's love is everlasting. Virtue is everlasting. Heaven is eternal. And this is our home. That's where we're all, even those who have bought into the lie that we need to change into the standards of the world, whatever this anti-Mary spirit, whatever it has whispered to any of us, the lies that it has whispered, um, we are we are searching for home, and home is not of this world. And the only way to get there is to reject the things of this world and to become more holy. And so um, I... I really do pray, Carrie, that our conversation can can do that in the lives of, of some. And may we all go out and and share the truth and love on your very last chapter is, you know, helping the walking wounded and, and going out there and loving on those who are now in the depths of despair or they're just, well, maybe not even that drastic, but they're just walking around wondering, what in the world am I doing? Why do I feel so alone? Why do I feel so empty? And yeah. may we just love on those people and and change change the world one little soul at a time. Well, and I, I think this is the one thing that as Catholic women we forget and we kind of can be kind of on the defensive and apologetic about our faith. You know, you can't use contraception and all those <laughs> kinds of things. But the reality is, is that there's no better place and there has been no better place for women than the Catholic Church. This is where our dignity has come from. No other world religion has offered this to women. Um, you know, up until this stage, women, until Christ came, women were really seen as as chattel and as slaves. And Christ and, of course, Our Lady and devotion to her has changed all of that. And so it's ironic that we're, you know, people are railing against the Church, not realizing this is where, uh, you know, we, our understanding of our dignity comes from. But we also have to remember that you know, we have the greatest tool in our hands, and it is this capacity to offer Our Lady and the Eucharist and all of these amazing sacraments and all of these gifts to women. Um, but we need to sort of be on the, the go on offense instead of constantly feeling like we have to be apologetic um, for our faith, but that we have something truly wonderful and amazing to, to give to the world. And, um, you know, that's what we need to be reminding people about. 
um, and, and helping them transform their lives through the church instead of hiding it from them and thinking, oh, this is just going to be a burden for them um, because there's really no one happier than, than Catholic women. Mm, I love that. I love that. It's true. And, and if anyone is listening and they have moved away from the church because of all the scandals or they've moved away because they had a bad priest or a bad experience in the church, please know that the church is full of fallen people. But the church is home. It is truly home because that is where Christ is living present in the Eucharist, in adoration, in the sacraments. And um, I just want to invite you to come home because this is where true home is and true joy is and healing to to really walk through that healing process of um, the hurts that we, we all have. We all have hurts. And um, I just want to invite people home. So, Carrie, thank you so much for you. your tireless work. <laughs> I know you're tired. <laughs> I don't know why tireless not. is used mm-hmm. on that, but... Mm-hmm. Um, I know you're doing something that um, is is getting people talking and thinking yeah. and yeah. and changing. I know you've had lots of feedback from people who have actually walked away from from those damaging lifestyles and and they yeah. are coming home. Yeah. yeah. So no, and it's been fun hearing about husbands and wives reading the book together and you know creating discussion among themselves and. Anyway, yeah, it's, I mean, it's kind of one of those books where you just never know what you're going to hear next about it, but uh, it's it's bearing incredible fruit, so I'm incredibly grateful for that. Yeah, I love that. Let's ask the question of where in my life today, even me, who I'm very aware of this anti-Mary spirit and the fem- toxic femininity, but where am I still living in that lie today? Because I know I have to be. Mm-hmm. I'm still mm-hmm. buying into lies. And I don't yeah. realize it yet. So maybe that's a great probing question for, for all of us to ask ourselves yeah. Lord, or ask the Lord, you know, where am I today still living in this lie? And it's robbing me of, of joy and happiness with, yep. with the I life. I think that's a great, a great question for each of us each day because it's, it's out there in spades. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And watered down. And so mm-hmm. we don't even really see it as it is. So again, thank yep. you so much. I appreciate you very oh, much. Thank you, Becky. I appreciate you. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Thriving in the Trenches. I have hope that it will have encouraged you in your journey and that you will know the love of God even more intimately. Please share this podcast with a friend on your social media pages or leave a review in iTunes. You are welcome to join me on our Instagram or Facebook group where we can grow in friendships. Thanks for coming. It's so much more than just a profile picture. At Catholic Singles, our platform offers you many opportunities to get to know the person behind the picture. Sign up today at catholicsingles.com. Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at caneford.com.